Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and 2016 is almost over, but we have one more story for you before the year winds down. Stay with us. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Bernard Smith. You are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's that time of year that many of us are are looking to make our New Year's resolutions. Of course, it's a tradition in many countries that come that time of year when the old year is finally finishing up and the new year is about to be rung in, that we set these goals for ourselves for self-improvement or maybe personal gain, personal growth, that sort of thing. But usually, these resolutions that we set, they come with a price, pain. Like having to cut out food, for instance, that you love so that you can lose weight or the effort of maybe working out so you become fitter, or maybe cutting out the favorite coffee shop stop that you normally do, or maybe your Friday night movie so you can save some money. All good goals, all with some pain attached to them. So is it any wonder that we sort of forget about our resolutions almost as soon as the year begins? Instead of setting goals that you see as sacrificial or painful, how about setting a win-win type of goal, a goal that's achievable yet fun to do? So the question is, how do we go about setting goals like this? Well, we looked at a study that was done at the University of Bristol by Professor Richard Wiseman. Wiseman did a study on New Year's resolutions, and in that study, only 12% of the people, 12%, actually achieved their goals. Now, it's notable that most of the goals in the study included weight loss, cutting back on alcohol consumption, or quitting smoking. Now, from my perspective, all these types of goals have one common denominator. That's that they require some sort of pain to achieve the goal. And of course, the long vision is how much better off you would be once you achieve those things. You know, the weight loss, the not drinking as much, being smoke-free, all of that is the best, of course, in the long term. But I know from experience, that long-term goal, that long-term payoff often isn't enough to push me through the pain process. So if you want to have a goal that you can look forward to, feel good about, yet still have an element of challenge, your bike may hold the answer. How about a goal that combines personal growth with adventure, sort of the win-win goal that I was talking about? Imagine doing some adventure with your motorcycle. Now, it doesn't have to be around the world or even to the next state or province for that matter. It could be two days. It could be 200 days. The numbers, time, and distance mean little. What is important is that you look at your comfort zone and then plan something that pushes it just a little bit. I mean, I think it needs to be achievable and believable that you can accomplish it. Now, a goal like that 
It's fun to plan, thrilling to do. And in the end, you've achieved some personal growth and built lasting memories as well. So this year, why not make a fun New Year's resolution? Make a goal to take a trip that you always wanted to do or or do whatever it takes to make sure that you've got a worthy goal. And then make sure you realize that goal. Like really make a plan, share with friends, focus on the rewards, you know, the actual trip itself, and then just get going on it. How about a resolution to do at least one trip, one adventure, one outing that stretches your personal comfort zone, yet rewards you with experience, a melding sort of 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 personal growth and motorcycle adventure. We've heard some inspiring stories over this past year on Adventure Rider Radio, riders who just decided to travel for, well, whatever reason, and in any way they could do it, any way they could afford or find to do it, they just did it. And not one person that we interviewed came back and said they didn't get anything out of it. And in this episode, we have a story to share with you that isn't exactly a New Year's resolution per se, but it's a goal that Derek Mansfield set for himself to travel to Mongolia because, well, that's what adventure riders do. I'd always wanted to go to Mongolia. Previously, I went out to uh, the kind of Iran Iraq border and stuff like that. But I knew that real motorcycle adventurers went to Mongolia. So I thought, that's it. I, too, have to go to Mongolia. So, um, you know, I bought the, uh, uh, the Moto Guzzi Stelvio, especially for this journey. I just had to go to Mongolia. That was it. That was the only reason. Well, it's not not quite that, you know, but it was a pretty egotistical reason, if you like. So uh, uh, we bought the bike on the way to Mongolia. How do you know that every real motorcyclist has to go to Mongolia? What put that in your head? Is that a long way round thing? Ah, uh, kind of. I think probably so. Yes, <laughs> because it's remote, right? I mean, or, or somehow it's it's undeveloped. It's sort of pure. Is that the idea? No, it's just that's where everyone else went to. So I thought I should go there too. <laughs> I mean, there are some dumb reasons for going to dumb places, Jim, and I think, you know, basically, yeah. I, I met this guy in a car park. This was, uh, I think, the previous year. And um, I, I was there with a sort of, you know, black leather jacket and a ripped T-shirt and all this kind of rock and roll nonsense on a cruiser. And... This chap was kind of really buttoned up in this kind of smart gray textiles, and he had a BMW, and he got on it, and I thought, I thought wow, that's so cool. And I think he actually he had his uh, uh, phone working in his helmet and things, and I thought, I want to be one of them. That's, that's what modern adventure man does. So I thought, yes, that's for me. And uh, uh, so then I went and bought a motorcycle. I actually bought some of these. No, I bought wax. You know, textile is a tad too far for me. So it was a wax jacket. And then and then I knew that with a wax jacket and a big sit-up and big uh, motorcycle that I was I was a motorcycle adventurer. And where to go? Well, it had to be Mongolia. It was just, you know, everybody knows that, surely. And this is when you're in your 60s. Uh, I was, yeah, I was 65, 66. So the reason I asked that is because it's nice to know that, you know, we don't change that much because what you're <laughs> describing could be a 30-year-old thought process. <laughs> well, funny enough, 
I, uh, I, I look around uh, Facebook all the time to find out people who are older than me. And, and one of my heroes is uh, Simon Gandolfi, who I think is now 80 and still going through India on a, on a post bike or something like that. I, I just have to love the man. And anyone else I can find who's older than me and who's out there riding, I will write to them and say, hooray. Well, I think one could deduce from that then it's motorcycling that keeps you young and keeps you alive. Oh, well, I, I, I think so. And one thing that has, uh, that has happened is I've changed bikes now. I have a much smaller bike because the, the Stelvio, although I loved it, and you know when I first uh, started riding it, it was as if I was from a, uh, a, a parallel universe, really. <clears throat> the, uh, but I keep dropping it, and I must have dropped it now in about 19 countries. And it's okay when you drop it. I haven't been hurt, or not too badly. I'll tell you some more about that at the moment. But um, uh, I have to wait for people to pick it up because it's too heavy for me. So eventually, um, this year, uh, I bought uh, still a Motor Guzzi. I bought a, a V7 Cafe, which I've now converted into uh, a potential round-the-world bike. So tell us about this trip, London to Mongolia. You said you got on the ferry and off you go. Okay, so um, I'd ridden across Europe uh, uh, before, and um, what I tried to do, or hitherto, I hadn't really enjoyed uh, Western Europe too much. It was, uh, first of all, it's very expensive. Um, secondly, the cultural differences, um, or there are more cultural similarities, if you like, than there are uh, differences. And I like to get to uh, to Poland, at least, because for me, that's where... Uh, my traveling begins. So on this particular journey, um, I got to Poland and uh, I mean, it was kind of mild stuff. I was just riding across Poland. It took a couple of days and I stayed in some nice places and things, not a whole lot to, uh, to go on about that. But my, my fear, my big nemesis um, is a city called Lviv, which is just over the Polish border um, in Ukraine. And I've been to this city a couple of times before and it's beautiful. It's a, a medieval city, and you kind of start in the middle, and you can see all the different kind of uh, um, conquerors who've been there. So it, it starts around the centre as medieval, and then you get the kind of uh, the Polish, and you get the Hungarians, and everyone else has ever been. And, and it all reflects itself in all this different architecture. The main thing is, is at the centre of the city, um, with this beautiful opera house, um, the centre of the city is covered in cobbles. Now, as a motorcyclist, you'll know that cobbles and rain are never very good. And the pre previous couple of times I've been through there, um, it was very slippery, very slidey, and I hated it. So I sat on the outside of uh, uh, Lvov. I sat at the side of the road, and a, a biker uh, pulled up. They'll always pull up if you're in Eastern Europe. You just sit there and someone will arrive. Anyway, he was on a very fine yellow cruiser, and I said to him in my finest English, how do I get round the city? And he said, it's easy. There's a circle road. Go down here, turn right, just keep going. Simple. So about 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, I found myself right into the center of the city on these bloody cobbles, and it was raining. And uh, I was wearing kind of rain gear. I was very, very hot. And uh, the lights went green. I, I pulled across, and the next thing I knew was I was underneath an enormous bus. So I was laying there in the road finding difficulty in, uh, in breathing. And someone at the, uh, uh, the back of the crowd, a woman, she said, it's okay, we're bikers. 
and they kind of pushed their way through the crowd. They they got the bike up. It was about three or four of them. They pushed the bike off the uh, off the road onto the pavement. They they uh, bribed the police to go away. They bribed the bus driver to go away because I'm a foreigner, therefore it was my fault. And within about 10 minutes, they got a, um, a small van to turn up and they put the bike on the back of that. Off it went to be repaired. And I was standing there with my mouth open. I just, oh, an ambulance arrived. And uh, uh, in the ambulance, there were kind of three people, some blankets, but that was it. There were no uh, painkillers or, you know, technical equipment. And they said, we're off to the hospital. And I said, I'm very sorry, I'm not. I'm going to get off and have a fact because that's really what I need. So uh, they said, well, you must sign here. So I signed there and the ambulance went away as well. And then these guys who had uh, picked me up, they took me to their apartment because um, I had a couple of cracked ribs. So it was a bit difficult kind of breathing and walking and stuff. So they took me to their apartment. And uh, I stayed there for uh, um, about five days before uh, they went off on a trip of their own. And that night and every other night, they had a party and all the local bikers came around to see this English playing on the couch with broken <laughs> ribs. So they thought it was all very funny. And then um, at the end of that, when I, uh, uh, they went off on their trip and I, I was moved to the place where the guy was uh, repairing the bike, it's, you know, it's a, his workshop and he'd, he'd straightened the wheels out. I think they're a bit bent, a lot of stuff with the electrics and a few other things. And at the end of it, I said to him, how much is this? And he said, Dadek, send me a postcard from Mongolia. And that was it. Wow. And he'd been working on the thing for a week. Just stunning, really. And that, that kind of stuff happens all the time, in my experience. Really does. That happens sort of east of Germany. Yeah. You know, France and Germany, they're, they're, they're good people, but they've, they know we've all got insurance. From Poland onwards, no one has insurance, so everyone helps each other. It's pretty incredible. We were just talking about this on our Raw show, um, mm -hmm. and it was Graham Field that brought it up about the, the camaraderie, biker camaraderie. And he, and he said, oh, in sure. Eastern Europe, he said, it is so strong. And, and he sort of was, you know, implying that, you know, the Western world sort of needs to go back to this, that helping each other, because we're very independent. That's the whole thing with Western society is we're, we all want to be independent. Yeah. And I think it, there's independence, Jim, but there's also isolation. You know, and it's a kind of, and, and what I prefer is, uh, is uh, interdependence. That kind of works for me. I think they come hand in hand, don't they? Because when you become independent, you can, and I've said this before, you can go into it, move into a neighborhood and want nothing to do with your neighbors and nothing to do with the community. You know, you just happen to want that house and you don't need anyone. You get your electricity and your internet and everything else. Yeah. And you can pay for it all. You know, that, that sort of the, the days of yesteryear when everyone need each other to survive have sort of fallen by the wayside. Now, if you have the cash, you, you know, you can do it. But because of that, you are isolated. You do become, you know, an island to itself. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things I learned in my 12-step program is uh, it used to be so hard for me, but these days I can, uh, I can go anywhere and I can put my hand out and smile and say, hello, my name's Derek. That used to be so hard, so hard. And what I discovered was that it's hard for everyone else too. So if you put your hand out, smile and say, hello, my name is, people, wow, they relax so quickly, even in foreign languages. So after you sat in the apartment for a while and, and met everyone and, and you're back on your bike? Yeah, then I'm off to, uh, um, uh, to Kiev, um, where I've got my kind of office and stuff like that. And I hung there for uh, um, about five days, still getting, you know, more repaired 
um, there's nothing you can do, as you probably know, for broken ribs. You just have to wait for them to uh, get together. Um, and then uh, I went off uh, across the border into uh, into Russia. And actually, I met some um, some amazing people there. Uh, I think the place was called uh, uh, Voronezh. And I was staying with uh, um, four young people who uh, lived in their family's dacha, um, which is, you know, a kind of... Uh, um, a small cottage way out in the uh, in the boondocks. And this particular dacha didn't have uh, any electricity, didn't have any running water, nothing. And uh, basically they were making, uh, they had their own uh, um, herbs, <laughs> specialist herbs that they grew there. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, okay, you know, my, my herbal days are, uh, are long behind me. But um, we were going out to this place and it was uh, it was dark. And uh, we, one of the roads was closed off. So the other guy, the young guy on the motorbike, he said, okay, I'll find the way. Off he went. And he came back in about, uh, about 20 minutes later. And he said, okay, Derek, follow me. They can walk, he said, pointing to uh, the rest of the crew. And uh, so I followed him. And it was, you know, it was dark. We were going through uh, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, pebble uh, roads, which were about three feet below the... Um, uh, if you like the uh, uh, the field line, and uh, they were very narrow, and he was kind of zooming through these things. Anyway, my courage was really screwed up. I, I got to the end of it, and I thought, thank God for that. It was only about twenty minutes, but I'm pretty fearful around this stuff. Anyway, he got off, and I said, "Did you have to go that fast?" He said, "I wasn't going fast," and, and I said, "Well, you were for me." He said, "Oh, I fell off the first time I came down here." Also, he said, "I'm stoned, so it didn't hurt." I thought, Jeez. <laughs> cool, dude. But, you know. Anyway, I, I stayed there with them for uh, three or four days. The, the reason I had to leave in the end is that when they went, went and got water, these are beautiful young people, they went off to the lake with all their kind of water-carrying stuff. But, but they'd invented this kind of uh, um, routine for themselves that when they went to get water, they had to go into the lake naked. So in they went. And they were beautiful people. They got all their kind of water full up and stuff like that. Now, I'm 65, right? And I'm not showing my body to anyone, dude. There's just no way it's going to happen. So, so I thought after three or four days, that's fine. You know, thank you very much. And so they, uh, they rode with me to the, uh, the edge of their city, and then they, they kind of sent me on the way waving and things like that. Anyway, I kind of careered across uh, um, Russia from one point to another. I, I met... Uh, at a petrol station, I met a priest and another couple of guys, all on motorbikes, all three on motorbikes. And uh, one of the guys gave me a bullet. He said, this is from uh, Chechnya. It's a lucky bullet. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll go along with that. So I, I put this on my key ring and didn't think too much more of it. I carried on then for uh, about another, oh, 2,000 kilometers, maybe more. Russia is such a huge place, you know. I've been riding for um, three weeks, and the people I, I stayed with, um, they took me into the town and they said, look, see this little church, this little white church? And I said, yes. They said, this is the very center of Russia. And I said, but I've been riding for three weeks and I've only got halfway. Jeez, it's just huge. It's actually, Russia is, I think, about um, 8,000 miles across. You know, it's just so impossibly big. Anyway, I was in Novosibirsk, which is this town which is halfway. I was planning to go to... Uh, um, Irkutsk, 
and then turn right into Mongolia. But my ribs were just too painful. I couldn't do it. So I turned right um, at Novosibirsk and I went down towards uh, the Altai Mountains. And uh, I was stuck in the road in a place, I think it's called Barnall. And the reason I was stuck there is because there was this huge uh, cavalcade of uh, motorcyclists came through. And uh, I think there's probably about a thousand of them on, on their bikes. And they went into it and they're obviously having a big rally. And I thought, well, that looks much more fun than what I'm having here. So I'm going to follow them. So I followed them in there. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a fantastic time, really. I mean, these guys are crazy. Uh, first thing they did was to dig holes in which they put the back wheels of their motorcycles. So the motorcycles are kind of pointed up in the air. And then they sit on them going, broom, broom. I, well, I don't, you know, it's kind of what they do. <laughs> and they had a, another game which was um, like 10-pin bowling. But what happened was there were 10 beer bottles um, put about 20 metres away. And then uh, there were some uh, tarpaulins down, and they covered the tarpaulins in, um, in water. And then they took one person, and four of them would throw the one person down the tarpaulin to knock over the uh, uh, the beer bottles at the end of it, which is okay if you like tempting bowling that way. And and then there was the kind of rock and roll. But and the but the, the main thing was the the people. You know, there were I think there were about four or five of us, if you like, travellers who pitched up at this thing. And and everyone looked after us. You know, we were fed, we were given drink, and da 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 da. Anyway. Um, I was uh, um, I was just sitting down to kind of relax in one of the one of the kind of uh, uh, tents, and um, a guy kind of came up to me and he looked out of the side of his eye, and he said he said you know my brother, and I thought oh we've got a problem here because the man's been drinking and da 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 da, da. and uh, I said well that's very nice I'm I'm sure probably yes and what's his name so he kind of went anyway what actually happened in the end was that. Um, this guy was the brother of the man who had given me the bullet from Chechnya. It was just that close. And then when I was leaving to go through the Altai, um, they gave me uh, uh, names and phone numbers of various other kind of uh, motorcycle clubs all the way through Russia. So it was, you know, if I had a problem anywhere, it's the same in Ukraine. It's like anywhere. If I've got a problem, I've got a whole raft of numbers that I can just phone up and someone will arrive and help. You know, it's just just like that. It's amazing. Really, when you're traveling along, though, like you mentioned, seeing all these bikes go by, if you were to see that in North America, that could be intimidating. You know, I mean, most people, I think, would just keep on going. I think you don't want to go near that. I'm curious, are you always putting yourself out to, um, like, sort of pushing the limit? You know, inviting yourself into something. You know, you mentioned putting out your hand and and introducing yourself. Are you always doing that, looking to meet people? Oh, sure. Sure. And, and so my, the rest of the question is, does it work? I mean, are there times where you sort of get slapped in the face? Never, never, ever, ever. And I guess what I'm asking, why I'm asking is because uh, I'm wondering, you know, why it's something we're so afraid of when we go somewhere, <laughs> you know, we're all like that. We, we, um, we tend to not want to get involved. We tend to, to not want to um, uh, put ourselves out, you know, feel uncomfortable, I guess is what it is, especially when it comes to strangers. I, I think actually, Jim, you know, when, when people meet me or see me, I'm not very big. I'm, uh, uh, what, five foot seven, I think. Um, I've got silver hair. I have a kind of uh, a short beard. Generally speaking, I'm wearing a brown leather jacket, a pair of jeans and some, and some English brogue boots. And I'd look non-threatening. 
So when I put out my hand and smile, people react that way backwards. But what I don't ever do, Jim, I don't go near uh, um, places with alcohol. I don't go near bars and stuff like that because I know where trouble begins. You know, if if you're in a bar, um, it just needs someone who's thinking, who gets a bit jealous and da-da-da-da-da. You know, they've had a few drinks and they mm. think, well, look at him, I'll, you know, I'll have a go at him. And, and I've just seen it happen. You know, it doesn't have to be abroad. It happens, you know, in, in your own country as well. So I just leave uh, places with, with alcohol a long, 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 long way behind. So when you're saying you, you just stopped at this, you met all these people, they're having uh, some sort of get together with the bikes. Is there not a bunch of drinking going on there? Yeah, yeah, but I'm in bed before it gets heavy. Oh, I see. Plus, plus, plus. Also, um, I'm a kind of uh, uh, um, I'm everyone's granddad all of a sudden. Mm. You know, they're all kind of looking after me. Don't don't forget that uh, in uh, in Russia and places like that, the um, uh, people die a lot earlier. You know, to see someone who's over sixty on a motorcycle is a bit of a miracle, really. So you got to know when to sort of push your way in or, or when to, you know, be bold and then also know when to leave. Sure. I don't, I don't think it's so much being bold. What I think it is, is uh, if my reason for traveling is meeting people, if I'm going to meet people, it means I have to do it somehow. And the easiest way to do that is to put my hand out and smile and say hello. So the word, rather than say be bold, it would be be open and friendly. Uh, that's exactly it. Well put. That's exactly it. Yep. So you carried on? Yep. So I, I went through the Altai Mountains. Off I went to um, uh, Mongolia, which was uh, a couple of hundred kilometers up the road. And what happens there, there's this uh, um, small town, name escapes me, it begins with an A, um, a very small town. And uh, there's the Russian border and there's the Mongolian border. I got there on whatever day it was, but it happened to be a public holiday, so the, uh, the border was closed. So I had to sleep uh, in a, on the floor in a cafe. Um, got across the border, that was all right. And then there's kind of 20 kilometers of, um, of tarmac, which is fine. And then you get to these, uh, uh, the final kind of Russian fence, and they open up the fence, and these huge iron gates are going creak, 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 creak. It opens up, and there is in front of you nothing. On Google Maps, there's a motorway. In front of you, there is nothing. And I just kind of thought, ah. Oh. <laughs> we, uh, we got the bike started, and off we went. And it was kind of, um, it was just shingled, you know, the, the motorcyclist's worst nightmare. So I'm plodding along on this shingle. And um, I'm looking down at the, uh, the step and thinking, well, that looks a lot safer than this does. But I just didn't have the courage to do it because if I was going to go down on the step, it meant I could never get back up to this kind of shingle road thing because it was so, so steep. So I just hung in there. I did about 200 kilometers, I guess. And uh, I hadn't seen a soul. I'd, I'd seen a couple of yaks, but I hadn't seen a person anywhere. I'd seen a couple of uh, yurts out in the distance. Anyway, 200 kilometers. And sitting on the side of the road was this, uh, was this motorcycle and this young guy on, on, sitting on top of it with a, a huge smile. So I pulled up and I smiled at him and I said, can I get coffee around here somewhere? That's the sort of thing you'd ask. So he looked at me, carried on smiling, and then he said, follow me. So off we went across the step at a speed I didn't really want to go at for about 30 kilometers. And we turned up at his family's, uh, his family's yurt, huge, great place. And they welcomed me, and uh, 
Um, I was to stay there the night, which was very nice. They turfed one of the brothers out of the bed in the yurt, so I uh, actually slept in the yurt. <laughs> and um, they, uh, it was quite interesting because they have a concrete part made out of concrete blocks, really, which is where they live in the uh, in the winter months. And there was a, a fire in there which was uh, for which they were obviously using the dung from the animals. Um, and on top was the uh, uh, the babushka. Uh, the mother was uh, creating this exquisite dish called plov. And uh, it was all made in a huge bowl, and it was just kind of rice when I was looking at it. Anyway, so it was then served as a family meal inside the yurt. And the yurt is amazing. It's kind of creamy gray on the outside canvas. And then on the inside, you have all this ornate woodwork, and there are mirrors hanging there and um, and kind of filigreed furniture, all sorts of wonderful stuff, really. Anyway, so we're having the family meal sitting there. And the plov has changed now. It's not rice. It is the classic testicles. Ugh. And they were not nice, I have to tell you. Um, chewy, I think. <laughs> Pretty tasteless. And, and I, I pushed them around the plate for a long time. So, you know, push, push, push. It wasn't really. No, I didn't uh, get along with those very much. But I had taken with me from England some Marmite. So we mixed the Marmite with the plov, and everyone was delighted with the new taste. They stole the Marmite, actually. They took it from me before I left. I can't blame them, but, but there we are. <laughs> so, anyway, next. so I'm curious. Yeah. You sort of glazed over that pretty darn quick. You sit there and you see what they're serving up, and they're serving up this this testicle dish, which, which yeah. I think most people have probably seen in Long Way Round. Yeah. And, and here you are thinking you're going to have to do the same thing. What's running through your head? Are you just thinking, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and eat them? Well, I was thinking that uh, the guy in um, uh, in a long way around the producer can't remember his name at the moment, but I thought he's such a girl because he just kind of chewed it a little bit and then spat it out. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. No way. These people are hosting me with their finest food. Russ Melkin. So, uh, so yeah, that's right, Russ. Mm. Yeah, big girl, Russ. Anyway, I uh, so I, I chewed it and ate it, and uh, I can't remember exactly how many I ate, but the last couple were were pushed around the plate because I wasn't going to go that far. But but with with uh, with Marmite, it's a, a much welcome addition. I can tell you. <laughs> well, probably many would argue that Marmite is right up there with the testicles. <laughs> yeah, I think possibly so, possibly so, possibly so. There we are. You're traveling to Mongolia. Where are you going anyway? Uh, well, the funny thing was actually, Jim. At that point, I got up the next morning, and I thought to myself, you know, I still got these broken ribs. I was in a lot of pain, and I thought. You know, getting to Mongolia was the objective. Um, that was the goal. I didn't actually want to die here. So I turned around and, and, and went back, you know. So my whole Mongolian trip was 200 kilometers or 250 kilometers in and 250 kilometers going back out again. It was enough, frankly. And, you know, I was alone, 66 or whatever I was, this enormous bike that kept falling over. And I just thought, no, nah, I ain't going to, you know. I, I don't really need to prove any more. I've done enough. I think the cynical observer may say that, well, so you rode 500 kilometers in a country with no roads to speak of just to eat testicles. Well, yes. It seems yes, an I'm odd not. objective. I, I must think about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite an incredible trip, and, and you returned home after that. Yeah, I I, um, I came back through Kazakhstan actually, and in Kazakhstan, um, it's it's an amazing place, really, truly amazing country, amazing people too. 
It's about uh, not as big as Russia, but I think it's about 4,000 miles across. And um, uh, what they do in uh, Kazakhstan, when they're repairing the roads, um, they, they bulldoze a, a one parallel and they close off the tarmac, if you like. And, and having bulldozed it, they then backfill it with sand and uh, shingle, which ain't great for we motorcyclists. And uh, the other thing there is they have this uh, terrible wind that sweeps uh, all the way across the steppe um, and caused a lot of uh, uh, dust storms. And I got caught in one of these while I was on this road being repaired. And uh, a four by four pulled in front of me. So what I did naturally was to uh, uh, put my brake on in sand. Everyone does that, right? And the next thing I knew, I was laying on my back looking up at these cars going past and there was sort of these brown moon faces looking down to see if I was dead, you know, so I kind of <laughs> smiled a bit. Anyway, a couple of people uh, picked me up and uh, helped me sort out the bike and uh, they took the uh, uh, the luggage which had been ripped off to uh, um, a motel which was about, I suppose, another 20 kilometres and I managed to uh, screw up my courage and uh, ride to get there. So I got to the motel and I got the uh, the bags back on the uh, the bike. I'd cracked my ankle, by the way, but I wasn't aware of it because the, the adrenaline was still running at this particular point. And uh, the manager came out and he said, I, I think you should stay here the night after this accident. And I said, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm English. I can do this. So I got on the bike and I started up and I rode 50 meters and fell off again. So he came up and said, I think you should stay here the night. So I said, yes, I think I should too. So I, I lay there that night with uh, uh, my ankle wrapped up in kind of ice cubes and stuff like that. And the next day, a lot of, uh, a lot of pain and still onto these, uh, these terrible, terrible roads. But, uh, you know, you ask the gods of the road to, uh, for a bit of help and you, uh, you get on and you do it, don't you? Because, you know, you have no choice. You can't get beamed up anymore. So, um, and that was kind of, Kazakhstan, which was fabulous. Um, and then I went back through uh, through Russia and went on TV. I was a TV star there for three and a half minutes. Why? Just because you were traveling by motorcycle? Yeah, absolutely. And I had to bump into someone who was a, um, a TV producer working for the local uh, station. So they said, will you come on? And I said, of course. So that's, that's, what, that's why, Jim, you have to take some decent clothes with you. <laughs> when you're on these rides, because you never know when you're going to be on TV. You know, it's, listen, I, I have this uh, this fabulous uh, friend who um, you you must you must have her on the show. Actually, when she was 22, this is back in the 80s, I think. She uh, uh, she rode all the way across uh, South America and then went to Australia and stuff like that. So I said to her, "What was the most important thing you you took with you, Catherine?" And she said, uh, <laughs> "She said." my ball gown and high heel shoes. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So I've I've decided that now I'm getting into tango, but uh, on my next trip, I shall take a pair of uh, leather sole shoes so that I can tango on the uh, en route. It's very important. Of course. You know. I'm surprised you're still riding, uh, you know, after a trip like that and, and, and going down, breaking your ribs and then the, the ankle and the the whole thing. I think it could be enough to make somebody say, you know what? It's too much. No, not no, never, not really. Uh, it, you get up in the morning, and what do you want to do? Get on your motorcycle and ride somewhere. Yeah, right? so that's kind of how it is, and that's that's what I like doing. And and if I can get on my motorcycle, ride somewhere, and meet someone 
perhaps that I've an, I haven't met before, and then listen to their story. Wow, what a day, you know? And if I'm doing that in a, in a country 5,000 miles away from my own, then wow, what a way to live. While I was Derek Mansfield, Derek is 70 years old. It's got to be an inspiration to most of us. He's also the author of a book called Notes from the Road, Volume 4. You can find out more about Derek by visiting his website, www.derekmansfield.com. That's it. I think we're about to draw it to a close. 2016 on Adventure Rider Radio. Sure happy to have you along for the ride. up another episode for Adventure Rider Radio. As a matter of fact, the final episode for 2016. And we are so happy, so grateful to have you along for the ride with us. It's been a great year. We've really enjoyed it. A lot of fun. We've learned so much from the guests we've had on this show. I want to thank you for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. My name is Jim Martin. I want to give a special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. That's it. The end of the year. Get out there and ride your bike if you can. See you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 